Welcome to the Decade of 2020 podcast. Join me in my effort as I relentlessly focus on how the next 10 years will affect the middle class in the Western economies. Forewarned is forearmed, they say. We will speak with the subject matter experts about the intersection of finance, geopolitics, and history in order to connect the timeless with the immediate. Today's guest on the podcast is Michael Avery. Michael is a global strategist with Rabobank, a bank based in the Netherlands. He analyzes the major developments across the globe and is a prolific writer himself. Michael has nearly two decades of experience working as an economist and a strategist. He worked as a senior economist and a fixed income strategist at the Royal Bank of Canada, based in both London and Sydney. Early in his career, he worked as an economist for Dunn & Bradstreet in London. Michael holds a degree in economics from the University College London, speaks Thai, and occasionally writes poetry. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Um, you're very kind to mention the poetry. I think I've written maybe one poem in the last 20 years, so <laughs> that's a, a slightly a slightly generous introduction there, but uh, not too bad. Thank you very much. So, Michael, give us the 30,000-foot view of the world as you see it on your own radar. Uh, a disaster, to be honest. When you're working in this particular field, uh, which is uh, financial markets and economics, uh, and you've been doing it you know, for over two decades like I have, you are generally surrounded by people who are talking their book, shall we say. So, for example, if you see an economist talking on television who is employed uh, to do with the housing market, they will tell you that the housing market is always just around, just about to turn the corner or already, you know, in a period of good times. If you're listening to an economist who deals with the equity market, well, naturally, the equity market is going to go up. The economy is going to be strong. Everyone's going to be laughing. I'm lucky in that my background is in country risk and in the bond market, both of which are areas that look for where things are going to go wrong, which I think makes you a bit more of a realist. Uh, and also because, you know, I, I don't have any one particular product portfolio like that to, to look at now in the global strategy role. You're trying to look at the big picture. And as I said, it's a disaster. I mean, as I speak now, we've just had the latest set of Q2 GDP data from Germany and from the US. And they're both of a degree that if I had told you a year ago, we were going to see like negative 30 odd percent down in the US, negative 10, 11% down in Germany. If I told you that we were going to see those kind of prints, you'd have laughed me out of the room and said that, you know, what am I expecting? World War Three, uh, you know, an earthquake where significant portions of both countries fall into the ground well that's exactly what we've recorded now you can look back and say well that's q2 that was the virus let's look onwards and upwards everything's going to get better from here and i have to say i don't think so you're going to get a bounce in q3 that's undeniable and then we're going to recognize the fact that from q4 onwards really we're stuck in what i'm dubbing the next normal which is even worse than the new normal, which is what we were stuck in before, which is even lower growth than we had prior to this COVID crisis, which was already far too low, even lower productivity, even more polarized societies, even higher unemployment, even more deflation, even more debt. Everything that we had wrong before is much, much, much worse, right the way across the socio-political spectrum. 
Now, you wouldn't know it looking at the stock market, of course. If all you're interested in is the, in the stock market or the price of gold, well, you're happy as Larry. Fantastic. I'm so, I'm so thrilled for you that that's the metric you get to look at. But in the real world where we all have to live, as I said, a disaster. What is the current zeitgeist whispering in your ear about things to come? Or what are the things that are keeping you up at night presently? <laughs> a lot of stuff's keeping me up at night. Okay, let me try and answer it in two ways. First of all, the zeitgeist, it depends who you listen to. As I said, if you're listening to people who are fixated on telling you the economy is going to bounce and get better, the zeitgeist is that we're past the worst of it and everything's going to improve, which I don't believe. If your zeitgeist is listening to people in the equity market, we've never had it better, never had it so good. And again, that's true for the equity market, but the equity market has no connection to reality at all, unfortunately, at the moment. It's a separate entity. You know, the zeitgeist I'm listening to and what keeps me up at night is looking at the fact that we already had a very, very unstable dynamic playing out globally. The difference between countries that were winning and countries that were losing, the difference within countries between the narrow subset of society who have been winning hand over fist and the majority who have been losing time and time again, political divisions, ethnic divisions in some places, massive polarization. Uh, and the complete collapse of what could have been called once the sensible center, basically the, the fusion of neoliberal economics and liberal politics, where you had uh, you know a whole generation of people who would say, well, I'm socially liberal uh, and fiscally conservative, as if somehow that was the most natural thing in the world. Um, and a globalized world built on the back of that. I think almost every element of that architecture is under existential threat at the moment. Uh, so we're talking about uh, deglobalization, I think, with, with uh, a great deal of credibility. We're also talking about, um, you know, the end of potentially liberal democracy. Uh, that's no longer a taboo topic. So everything that you might want to hold dear uh, is potentially, and I stress potentially because nothing's, you know, fixed yet, potentially at risk. Um, you know, the future is completely unwritten and the spectrum of possible future outcomes genuinely keeps me up at night. In your recent piece that got published a week or so earlier, you have connected the Hippocrates Oath with money printing. The piece was titled, Money Printing, First Do No Harm. What was the thought process behind the title? And what do you feel about the response of the central banks to the pandemic and after? Well, the title... First of all, whenever you write a piece like that, you're always aiming to get a title that people will read. I don't like being too technical, and equally, you don't want to be too controversial. But the reason we chose that particular one is we hoped that it would capture accurately that people are increasingly relying on central bank policy. In this particular case, we were writing about MMT, or modern monetary theory, as some kind of palliative or some kind of medicine, not just for one economy, but for the whole globe. And we wanted to stress that, as you correctly said, the Hippocratic Oath is first, do no harm. And that there's no guarantee whatsoever, very regrettably, that MMT will do no harm. And in fact, a great deal of evidence that it could do a great deal of harm if done wrong. Uh, and given that most of what we do everywhere, most of the time, is done wrong, that is quite likely to play out in MMT territory as well. To answer what you're talking about with central banks, I mean, we live in a world in which central banks now are just ubiquitous. They're everywhere talking about every aspect of everything. And we're utterly reliant on them 
to maintain any semblance of normality because we're relying on central banks uh, to prop up governments. And governments are basically the only thing stopping us from running around, running around attacking each other in the streets at the moment, you know, having a genuine 1930s style queue for bread and homelessness as far as the eye can see. And yet central banks' role used to be that of a boring technocrat looking at keeping inflation at 2% over the long term. Now they're talking about everything from how to build a just society to how to save us from global warming. Uh, and none of these things are easily achievable for a group of unelected technocrats who can't even get inflation at 2%. Now, that being said, I think it's inevitable they're going to keep doing more. And I think there's a lot more that they can do and should do uh, in conjunction with governments. But at the moment, we're seeing this process of kind of backstage evolution of central banks from boring technocrats to what are purportedly masters of the universe, but they're masters of the universe with really very, very few tools left in the toolkit that do anything other than causing as much harm as good. And yet the alternative is probably even worse, which is why, as I said, I'm kept up at night far more often than I would like. The Masters of the Universe is a great segue to speak about MMT. Uh, do you mind breaking it down for my listeners like you would explain it to your 10-year-old? Well, I think that's a good way to explain anything, by the way. Ten-year-olds uh, can be, you know, exceptionally sharp, and I think whenever you see anyone trying to explain anything in highfalutin, convoluted jargon, you know that basically they're either not very good at explaining things, or they're deliberately not very good at explaining things. Uh, you know, economists are experts at just saying gibberish, and they dress it up in mathematics and, and jargon to not you not make you realise actually it's a nonsense that they're saying. Um, MMT, in the in the simplest possible terms can stand for magic money tree. Magic money tree, uh, which is something that, of course, every politician who's socially liberal and fiscally conservative will tell you doesn't exist. There is no magic money tree. There's no such thing as free money. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You can't just print money and get away with it. Well, MMT is a theory that says, oh, yes, you can. And oh, yes, we have for the past 5,000 years or so. And historically, they are absolutely correct because MMT is not really about money per se. It's about political power for reasons I'll come back to in a moment. It's not modern. It's extremely old. Uh, and it's not really a theory because we can prove it exists. It's about a 5,000-year tradition of when you haven't got any money, printing it <laughs> in order to make sure you've got money. And that's effect effectively what MMT is. Now, whether you can or can't print it, is where we get to the power issue because governments do have the power to just print money via the central bank that they control or they can control if they want to, if they allow themselves to, uh, and they can produce as much money as they want. Uh, you know, the real world limitations of what they can do with that money are physical supply and demand. If you print too much money so demand is higher than supply, you will get lots of inflation which can be very, very damaging. If you don't print enough money, you can have lots and lots of deflation, which can be just as bad. And anybody who tells you that inflation is terrible correctly needs to be intellectually honest and say deflation is just as terrible. So, you know, it's, a, it's an awful dilemma to be caught in that both of those two extremes destroy societies. Um, so there you go. The government has the power to print money. They can basically say we have unemployed doctors and sick people we will print money to make sure the doctors treat the sick people. In many respects, you can say that's a sensible thing to do. The catch is 
you have to have the power as a government to overcome vested interests within your own society and say, we're doing this, whether the banking sector likes it or not, whether the media likes it or not, whether big business likes it or not, we're going to do it. That's one level of power. And the second dimension of power is do you have the power to force other countries to accept the money that you've just printed if the money you've printed has to buy things from them rather than from yourself? So effectively, if you're a net borrower from the rest of the world, if you run a trade deficit with the rest of the world because you don't have much productive capacity, yep, you can print as much money as you want in a a country that has nothing but desert everywhere. But there's no way you're going to give that paper money to the rest of the world and say, yeah, we'll swap this for food, for construction materials, to build houses, you know, for nice iPads and technology to help us become a high-tech superpower. Why would they swap money backed by nothing but desert for those goods? So you have to have domestic power and you have to have international power. And that's why the M in MMT really isn't about just money. It's about much more than that. And why it isn't modern, it's as old as the hills, and why it isn't a theory, because we've seen it play out time and time again. So I've taken a bit of time, and I apologize, but I hope that's good enough for a 10-year-old, and I hope it's good enough for your listeners. In your piece on MMD, you wrote, and I quote, Go for it. Our main conclusion is this. Few countries are strong enough for the MMD treatment. Only six, in fact. Japan, Malaysia, China, Thailand, Uruguay, Israel. The Eurozone also could, but as noted, it chooses not to. Only seven countries in the world meet our proposed MMD criteria. Leaving aside the US, these countries need the rare combination of sovereign currency, simultaneous fiscal deficit, and current account surplus, plus good governance. End quote. Can you kindly articulate your conclusion? (laughs) I'll try. And this does get more complicated, even though actually it's very simple. And it's just an extension of what I just said. So you have to think about this, first of all. In each country, we have three different balances that we have to look at. And it's called an accounting identity, without getting too technical. Uh, And it's a logical truism. It's like one plus one must equal two. You, you can't play around with that. That's just the way it works. You can't change any one part of it without the rest of it changing. So you have, on one hand, you have what we call the private sector balance. So the private sector can either be in surplus, meaning it's saving, or in deficit, meaning it's dis-saving, it's borrowing. You have the government balance. And the government can either be saving, running a fiscal surplus, it's taxing more than it spends, or the government runs a deficit, which means it's borrowing from the private sector. Uh, and it's taxing less than it spends. And the sum of those two together, the private and the public, they are the external surplus or the external deficit. So very simply, if the public sector has a surplus of two, and when I say two, I mean percent of GDP, but let's just say two here, and the public sector has two, so private sector has two, public sector has two, your external surplus will be four. If the public is minus two and the private is plus two, your external is in balance, is zero. So fairly simple. Now, when you run MMT, you're doing it because the government is printing money to try and stimulate the economy because you have mass unemployment, you have far more uh, empty factories and unemployed workers than you know what to do with. That works fine in an economy where you necessarily, therefore, have a big public deficit and let's say minus 10 
which once upon a time would have been seen as a crazy figure, but we're actually seeing minus 20 in some countries at the moment. Okay, let's say minus 10 on the government side. Well, let's imagine that the government throws all that money into the economy to employ people. But unfortunately, because of the structure of the economy, the household sector and the business sector, who together are the private sector, they're both also borrowing money. They're both splurges. So then you'd have a government at minus 10 and the private sector, let's say, at minus 4, which is extreme. That would give you an external of minus 14, which means 14% of your economy you'd be borrowing from the rest of the world and 10% of it you'd be trying to pay for with printed money or up to 10% on the government side would be from printed money. And if that happens, can you buy things from abroad? Absolutely, but the exchange rate will collapse. It's as simple as that. People will say, this is funny money, in the example of the country with nothing but desert that I gave before. So therefore, yeah, okay, either interest rates go up and you don't want that to happen, or the exchange rate goes down, which is far more likely to happen. So what I said in the report you're referring to is the subset of countries who we think can sustainably run MMT from a structural perspective now, although structures can change, uh, are ones who already have a fiscal deficit. So the government is already borrowing. We can already see the government is borrowing. But the private sector is still running a big surplus, meaning that actually they produce more than they consume. So they're saving. And the rest of it is exported to the rest of the world. So if you have fiscal slash government at minus five and private at plus seven, hypothetically, that gives you external of plus two, that minus five that the government is running, you can print that if you want. You don't have to borrow it from international investors or borrow it domestically. You can just print it because you're a net external surplus country. You're a net lender. You're not a net borrower. You are at the margin drawing more money into your country from abroad than is going out of it. And your exchange rate is supported. Very few countries meet that criteria. But of course, that can change. You can change the structure of your economy with industrial policy, with state investment, potentially you know, initially you uh, levered up by, by MMT uh, to begin with. You can shift your country from being a net importer to a net exporter. It's very painful to do. It involves big, swinging changes to how everything's done. But it's possible. At which point you join the lucky club and you can do it. But not everyone can. But isn't that what Japan has been doing for the past 20 odd years in the aftermath of the collapse of their economy in the 90s? You're quite correct. Japan is an example of a country that I think from an involuntary basis, they would much, they would much rather have a stronger economy and not be in this position. But the position they are in is one that, yes, the government runs large fiscal deficits most of the time. Government debt as a stock rather than a flow is, is staggeringly high. I believe around 240% of the economy is absolutely vast. And yet the private sector continues to save. Households save profusely and just funnel that back to the government. And the business sector still has so much excess capacity that they end up making more than is consumed in Japan and selling it to other people. So yes, they meet the criteria, which means Japan could do MMT. And despite the fact that technically they're not doing MMT, technically they're not, and they would say publicly they're not, in reality, when you look at the stock of government debt in Japan, 
and you look at the fact that the Bank of Japan has bought around 43, 44, heading for 45% of all the Japanese government debt out there already over a period of years, does anyone think they're ever going to sell that back into the market? Are they really going to sell 45% of the economy worth of debt to other people? The answer is no. It would destroy the bond market. So in other words, they've bought it with printed money, and they're never, ever, ever going to sell those assets again. So QE, or quantitative easing, which we're very used to countries doing all around the world now, is effectively MMT in a form if we accept the fact that it's never going to be paid back or never going to be unwound. And I don't think it'll ever be unwound. So basically, it's the same thing, two steps removed with a kind of a thin veneer over the top, but not being done usefully most of the time, unfortunately. The the government isn't taking that money and saying, well, we know we've got free money, so what can we do to transform society with it? They're not thinking big picture like that. They're just papering over the cracks. So it's all very short-termist and and can-kicking-y rather than really thinking about the fact that we're stuck in this paradigm for years or decades ahead and we need big picture thinking to get out of it. Just to play that devil's advocate, um, in in all of the cases where some variant of MMT was tried, it has resulted in spectacular failure, namely Argentina, Brazil, uh, Zimbabwe. It ended in hyperinflation and all of the social evils that come with it. But the argument that some experts would make is that the US dollar is the global reserve currency and over 60% of the world trade is still settled in it. How do, you, how do you view that argument? Well, I have to say that's not a devil's advocate argument. That's part of what we also say. <laughs> that's why we say only seven countries are actually in a position today to embrace MMT. And we specifically say that, yes, Zimbabwe, Argentina, Brazil, you know, Weimar, Germany, if you want to go back to the 1930s, all these are benchmark indicators that most countries can't get away with it because they don't meet the criteria that we put forward. Uh, you know, sadly, it would be great if we could uh, all meet those criteria, even if it's not possible for all of us to, uh, logically. Um, but the US is, as you say, a, a special case. The US does not meet uh, those criteria. The US runs a large, very large trade deficit with the rest of the world, and it has an enormous fiscal deficit. So rather than having a big negative on the government side and a big plus on the private side, and therefore a plus small plus on the external side, the US has a negative and a negative meaning a negative. But because everyone around the rest of the world thinks in US dollars, accounts in US dollars, uh, trades in US dollars, so when goods are shipped from country A to country B, they're normally paid for in US dollars, even if neither country is the US, there is an automatic need for the US dollar. And the only way to get hold of the US dollar is for the US to supply it. And the only way for the U.S. to supply it is for the U.S. to run a deficit. And the U.S. running a deficit with the rest of the world means the rest of the world gains a claim on the U.S. in the form of U.S. dollars. So they flood out of the U.S. via the external deficit and everyone else uses them as the lubricant to keep international trade and finance going. So the U.S. is the lucky exception. They can print money. They can run MMT. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, to an extent they already are. Again, I don't believe the Fed's balance sheet, which is ballooning, uh, is ever going to be reduced. We tried that last year. It was a catastrophe, as we predicted it would be. If they ever try it again, it will be a catastrophe again. Um, it's a one-way street. So we temporarily print money and inject it into the economy, try and save things, hope things are okay, and when it doesn't work, we do more of it. But there is a limit to this. It doesn't come cost-free. 
even for the US. There is no such thing as a free lunch anywhere, even in America. How should my listeners be worried about the inflation versus deflation debate from a perspective of MMT? And do you see a clear direction for the next 12 to 18 months? Well, first of all, if your listeners are worried about inflation versus deflation, they've already got to admit that they are in the winning circle in life at the moment. With this COVID crisis, there are so many people worried about having food on the table. There are so many people worried about having a roof over their head. There are so many people worried about, you know, how they're going to feed their kids. If you're in a position where you can afford to speculate and worry about whether you're going to get a 5, 6, 7, 8 or 9, 10% return on your pension fund over the next few years, frankly, you haven't got that much to worry about, uh, which is why I, I stay awake at night because so many people are in such desperate straits, uh, you know, relatively. But okay, let's focus on that subset because I'll admit that's, that's a lot of my clients too. If you're worried about that, if you look at the, the architecture that I'm drawing up here, I think it's desperately, cripplingly, possibly dangerously, you know, society destroyingly deflationary in the short term. The only inflation we see right now is in equity markets and maybe house prices to follow because when you print as much money as is being printed, of course, it has to go somewhere and it goes into the pockets of the rich. And the rich bid up assets because that's what they do. You know, it doesn't help anyone who's starving. It doesn't help millions of people who might be about to become homeless and unemployed. But, you know, the rich are richer. So there's always that. And that seems to be a policy that we rely on everywhere as if somehow having people in central banks and uh, skyscrapers say, let them eat stocks is going to result in anything other than the same outcome that it did in France a couple of hundred years ago which I I repeat again, is why I'm not sleeping well at night. But that's your deflation short term. Eventually, we will get inflation on a more generalized basis, purely because there will be a political pushback against this. Ordinary people on the street now understand what QE is. Ordinary people understand money is being printed on a vast scale. Ordinary people understand that prior prior to COVID, governments were telling them, Day in, day out, there's no money for this. There's no magic money tree. You can't have that. You can't have roads. You can't have schools. You can't have doctors. You can't have hospitals. You certainly can't have a pay rise. You can't have any jobs coming home. They have to be offshored where production is cheaper. Don't be stupid. Do you not understand how the world works? You can't have any of that. Well, suddenly COVID comes along. There's free money for anything you want for as long as you want during the crisis, which, by the way, is not a surprise, again, because if you look at the history of MMT, Anytime there's a war, and I'm in a serious war, not one where a big country bullies a small country at great distance and no one at home even knows about it, apart from the working class whose sons and daughters are you know, recruited to go and fight because they can't get a good job anywhere else. I'm talking about a real war you know, where people are actually at risk of dying right the way across the entire society. When that happens, worries about sound money go out the window. You spend whatever is necessary and you settle the bills afterwards. And that's called printing money as well most of the time. So we've rediscovered that dynamic, which, as I said, is part of MMT. How do you put that genie back in the bottle politically? I want to see the politician somewhere that's going to turn around to everyone and say, do you remember when we told you we were going to bring supply chains home because of national security? We were joking. We're going to keep offshoring them. So your pay is going to stay flat or go down. Do you remember when we told you that, you know, uh, key workers who, you know, risk their lives to save us all are going to be rewarded? We were joking. We can't afford it. 
Do you remember when we told you we needed more infrastructure? Can't afford it. More schools? Can't afford it. More hospitals? Can't afford it. You know, we have to pay back all the debt to cover the bonds that the central bank actually is already buying, meaning that it's printed money. Now, you might think what I'm saying sounds crazy. That's what happened after the Eurozone crisis. You know, during the Eurozone crisis, you know, you saw smaller countries in Europe effectively taxing their citizens extremely heavily to try and pay back debts, which were built up during the crisis, when those funds had already been remitted back to banks who remitted them back to the European Central Bank, who just destroyed them. You know, the money had been extended as emergency liquidity during the crisis. It was sent back to the European Central Bank and just taken off the balance sheet. Boom. Boom. It didn't create any inflation when it was spent into the economy because it was a crisis-fighting measure. But afterwards, real salaries of real people had to be docked with real taxation back to the government for years to repay those funds back to make sure there wouldn't be any inflation. You know, it's an absolute nonsense. So anyone who thinks MMT is nonsense, and to some degree it is, you have to admit, so is the way we do things now. And I put it to you and to all the listeners, if that's the political backdrop, we are just, I don't know, weeks, months, years away from a political force emerging somewhere that has the intelligence to join the dots between the upswing of populism that we already see everywhere, which is no surprise to me, I've expected it to be coming, and understanding how MMT works, which few of them do so far, and understands how to get that message across over the heads of vested interests to say you can have all this. It just means we have to restructure the economy and the vested interests aren't going to like it. And when that happens, yeah, then it's going to be revolutionary. Wow. That's going to keep me up at night now. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear it because if it doesn't, I think you haven't fully absorbed the message. And on one level, I have to say, I think this is optimistic and positive. But of course, you know, like any trend, if you go too far with it, it will get out of control. And I want to just quickly touch on the downsides. One of them, I've already said, yes, inflation will get out of control in many countries. That's very likely to happen. Not immediately, but with a lag. So maybe, you know, a couple of years down the line, you can have a real emerging market inflation crises and currency meltdown. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Secondly, I've already alluded to it. You need to change the structure of society. Countries that have become big importers need to become exporters. Because as I've said, if they're exporters, you can print money to have schools and hospitals. So why wouldn't you change the structure of your society? The problem is, if you do the math, until we find another planet to become an exporter to, like Mars or Venus, if we can discover life there, we can't all be net exporters. For every net exporter, you need an equal net importer because it's a seesaw. For every China, you need an America. For every Germany, you need a UK. Well, when countries like the UK and America say we want to be running trade surpluses now so that we can print money to look after society at home, that means the countries that have built their entire economy on the back of selling to other people get smashed. And it becomes a very zero-sum game. We've been here before. It was called the 1930s. Didn't play out too well. Is this the smart money pivot to gold and silver? Is the recent run-up in gold and silver prices an indication of, of that? Or is that more to do with the geopolitical tensions that are rising at the same time? No, I'm going to be rather rude here. No, the smart money were the people who bought gold when it was half the price it is now and silver when it was half the price it is now and the people who are pushing it up now are idiots. Yeah, no offense to anyone in- individual because actually I do believe that the prices for both can continue to go higher. 
Um, I, I stress that while you might want some of them in your portfolio, I'm not an investment advisor and I'm not giving any recommendations of any kind. But when I'm talking about the big picture geopolitical architecture here, I'm talking about a system in which gold and silver are irrelevant. Because as we have seen in the past, once you start having an asset comes along that basically shows the emperor has no clothes, that asset becomes illegal. So anyone buying a cryptocurrency or gold or silver thinking, ha ha, this will do me some good when the whole system collapses globally, doesn't realize that when that happens, they'll make them illegal. So if you're going to buy gold and silver, buy shotguns, buy a house in the middle of nowhere with land and food you can grow yourself and running water, uh, and understand that none of your neighbors are likely to trade for the gold or silver or Bitcoin that you've got. Because ultimately, at some extent, to some, you know, to some extent, somewhere down the ladder, you're going to have people who won't take it because the government will say it's illegal to do it. You need the power. And I come back to power again, which I already mentioned twice in relation to MMT, to have other people accept that particular currency. Uh, and when the government has a monopoly uh, on violence, which they do, and on taxation, which they do, they're the ones who are going to be setting the terms. Now, that doesn't mean, as I said, that gold and silver can't go up. They can. Uh, I'm sure they'll go up a bit further. But to say that because, you know, investment bank X or Y or Z recently said, we suddenly think this is a time to get in on it. That's where the smart money is going. No, the smart money were people who saw this a long time ago. You know, <laughs> it's the same with any trend. Once suddenly it's on the front page of The Economist, that's normally <laughs> when the trend is more likely to go in the opposite direction. Talk a little bit about the ideas that you've drawn out in the latest piece that you wrote titled Golden Balls. I found the metaphor fascinating. Well, I mean, in that piece, I'm, I'm basically saying what I just said to you now, that people are attracted to the idea of gold, and I understand why. I'm sympathetic to it. It makes intuitive sense purely because other people will be doing it. So if you want to buy something because other people are buying it, fine. But if you're buying something because you think it's actually providing you some genuine hedge when things go wrong, you know, at that point of denouement, that's golden balls. Um, and the reason I use that phrase is because David Beckham was called Golden Balls in the UK and everyone in England loved him. You know, he was our most talented footballer of a generation. Um, and despite flashes of brilliance all the time uh, and the very fancy footwork and being very, very famous, he never won anything. When push came to shove, he never won. Um, you know, he's not at the international level. I mean, he won with his club, but he never won, you know, the World Cup. He never won the European Championship. The only two things that matter when you play for England. And gold won't win. It won't win here. Neither will crypto. Governments will remain too strong because we're talking about an environment in which governments get stronger. MMT is a stronger government, not a weaker one. So what, what would be the ideal hedge be against inflation if gold and silver are, are not because of the power that the uh, and the monopoly on violence? There, I mean, there is no ideal hedge. Well, basically, there's no ideal hedge to anything anywhere ever. Because, you know, you just substitute one risk for another. Um, you know, being rather flippant, okay, buy how many Mona Lisas are there? You know, buy, buy things that are genuinely rare, uh, fairly easy to hide and move around. Uh, and that, you know, there's going to be a real demand for permanently. But I, I don't see, you know, that genius Renaissance paintings are going to be something that everyone's going to be getting into easily. I think each country's outlook is so sharply variable between the deflation and the inflation. And what that will actually mean for what assets will be worth anything or even traded that it's impossible to say. Because if you go through your asset classes, I've just ruled out metals, not because they can't go up, but because when you push comes to shove, you might find suddenly they're regulated and you can't trade them. 
and you know you have all that asset locked away in nothing effectively same thing for cryptos you know they're they're, they're one regulation away from being illegal so then what do you have um okay equities well equities are already through the roof anyway and they are a good hedge for inflation and it's quite likely that you'll continue to see people say that whatever the environment equities have to keep going up possibly until you get to the revolution at which point the company is nationalized uh, or you know <laughs> the barbarians are at the gate and, and Rome is burned. At which point you know what what's uh, what's a Roman share worth then? Not a lot. The bond market, well, yields are so low already. Is it worth it? For some, yeah, maybe in the short term a little bit. Yields can probably still go lower from here, but it's pretty marginal. In, could you buy inflation uh, indexed bonds? Well, logically that makes sense because in, in a deflationary environment you get all your money back which is better than a negative yield. And if there's inflation, you're covered by that. So inflation index bonds theoretically make sense. But there's a subset of countries that issue them uh, and you know, not on a very large scale, unfortunately. And then you're talking about currency risk because if you're not going to be in gold and silver, as I said, whatever you're doing, you have to think what currency are you in and what are the other currencies doing? Uh, and you can make an argument to be you know, pro or anti any currency or all of them. So, you know, I'm not trying to dodge the question. I'm just trying to make clear that at the end of the day, the spectrum of how bad scenarios can get ahead goes from really bad to I don't even want to even talk about it. Uh, and within that particular spectrum, hedging against inflation should not be your primary concern. I, I repeat, you want to think about preservation of capital, which is, okay, it's part of hedging against inflation, but you want to make sure about preservation of safety preservation of lifestyle, preservation of you and your family, you know, and I'm not saying this will play out by any means. It's not a Rabobank forecast. I want to make that abundantly clear. But when you're talking about hedging strategies in the current environment, you need to be a lot, lot more big picture thinking than just saying, well, this will protect me against inflation being two percentage points higher than the long run median, because you are in just completely the wrong ballpark if that's how you're thinking. In golden balls, you wrote, if the US were to slip into deflation, meaning positive real rates again, unless the Fed goes negative, how will yield-free, no-end-use no gold look like? What are the set of circumstances you imagine for the Fed funds rate to go negative? And why would that make gold undesirable? Well, look, on one level, you'd say the Fed will go negative when hell freezes over. Because if there's one thing they don't want to do, it's go negative. Uh, and I think it's very, very unlikely to happen. Uh, you know, they'll see yields go to virtually zero, first of all, and do infinite QE, you know, forever, rather than go negative. So that's, that would be when absolutely everything, everything else is falling apart everywhere. And everyone else has cut to, had to cut rates so negative that US interest rates are too high just by being at zero. That would be the scenario, you know, really, terrible global scenarios not a u.s specific one um, and why would it be bad for gold because the point i'm making is that really what's driving gold is what you call the real yield which is the you know the yield accounting for inflation uh, and at the moment you know inflation uh, is still at a, at a level whereby you're seeing a negative real yield when you invest um, uh, and gold looks attractive in that environment, because gold doesn't give any yield at all, but it's better than negative. But if we get to an environment where we slip into deflation, which is possible, 
where we have like negative inflation, like in Japan. Europe's on the edge of it too. And so you've got a zero interest rate in the US, zero, but inflation is minus 2%. That means you have a positive real interest rate of 2% just by having a zero interest rate, which is the same as the inflation index treasury or TIPS that I was just talking about. And in that environment, if you get 2% just for basically doing nothing, why own gold? And you will find if that does uh, occur, people won't own gold. Not in that environment. You get more yield just for doing nothing. Moving a little toward the, the geopolitical narrative. In a piece that got published uh, 24th of July, you wrote, U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo's speech yesterday was momentous, if not yet guaranteed to be portentous. The speech was just a notch below, calling for a regime change. Where does U.S. policy go from here, you think, um, especially as we head into elections? Well, I'm glad you've said that because it depends on the election. Um, in the run-up to the election, obviously, the sabers are going to be rattled far more aggressively because China will become a larger and larger election issue from the Republican side more than the Democrat. It's, it's a weapon they can use to attack what they call Beijing Biden with. It's a good distraction from the virus and the terrible economy. Um, and then it depends who wins. Now, if Trump wins, you would imagine he'll continue to be hawkish with China. Uh, there is also the chance that he could turn around and say, right, four years, nothing to worry about, don't need to run again. What deal can we strike? I think that's pretty unlikely. And I think, you know, certainly the risks of a clash between the two so definitely escalate uh, with, with, with Trump winning. Having said that, if Trump loses, he's in office for nearly three months before Biden takes over. Pretty much all of November, all of December, big chunk of January. If you're Donald Trump, You've got nothing left to worry about. You don't really care about the Republican Party per se. Um, and you want to leave a really difficult legacy for Joe Biden. Why not get really hawkish on China in the lame duck period? Why not really act uh, on things like sanctions, etc.? And there's a significant risk of that. So even if Biden wins, Trump can act more aggressively in the interim, into the, the interim period before Biden takes over. Uh, and Biden himself, okay, look, he's, uh, he's a tabula rasa. We don't know. He claims that he's going to be very anti-China. Um, a lot of his uh, supporters, uh, you know, corporate supporters, would actually like to see more of a détente. Is that possible? It's not impossible. Um, but, you know, we don't know what he'll decide to do, and particularly we don't know what he'll decide to do in light of how far relations have already deteriorated now and how much further they're likely to have deteriorated by the time we get to January the 20th. So... The future is unwritten, but it's pretty hard to be optimistic on that front. Do you have any thoughts on the US dollar, uh, especially with the continued weakness that we are seeing in the past uh, couple of weeks, uh, bearing in mind the fact that the Dixie made a high of 100 uh, and it's now at 93 uh, as we speak? Well, yeah, the answer to that is so what? <laughs> because we're getting articles, again, written by the same clever people who are interested in gold now, um, saying that you know, the US currency might be becoming to the end of its run as the global reserve currency. Uh, well, all I can say is, you know, it's been the global reserve currency all the way back to 1945, uh, up until, you know, the early 70s with gold behind it, and since then with nothing behind it, just as itself. It's been enormously higher than this during that period, and it's been enormously lower. And yet at no point during that period was there any serious move away from it becoming anything other than the global reserve currency. You know, the euro came along, didn't really shift it. China has risen, 
hasn't really shifted it. So it's going to maintain its status as the global reserve currency for a long, long time yet, failing really, really, really bad scenarios unfolding after the US election. Uh, and even then, it would probably hang on because there's nothing else to replace it. You have to have something that will walk through that door when that door is opened. And there is nothing ready to walk through that door, I can assure you. So if you're asking about the dollar specifically, can it get weaker in the near term? Yeah, sure. It can go down a bit more from here. Absolutely. Once the rest of the world sees that its economy is not recovering and that the US is not exceptional uh, and that the kind of damage that I've described to the economy is structural and permanent, uh, and that therefore, you know, there's not going to be a bounce anywhere, then I would imagine you'll get pressure on many other countries to be as radical as the Fed is being already. And the dollar will go back up again. So I think the dollar is going to go down now. It will go back up again further down the line when other countries suffer more. And if we get any kind of clash with China, the dollar will go through the roof. Because if it's a binary choice between the two, you go for the devil you know, not the devil that you don't. So that's what I have to say about the dollar. Um, right now, I just think that's the wrong way to be looking at things, to be honest. Uh, I'm not dodging the question. I just think it's the wrong question. Uh, I, I don't think that one should be necessarily throwing all talk of opportunity out the window. But the more important thing is to look at tail risks, to look at fat tail risks, to understand just how bad they can be if you misread them by thinking that we're operating in a relatively normal set of parameters. Uh, in financial markets and economics, in politics, in geopolitics, and just trying to, you know, be mildly optimistic here or there or wherever, you know, relative to other locations. I think you're riding for a fall. I think the far cleverer thing to do is really take a step back, try and under, try and understand and assess what's happening with the big picture architecture. Now, I've presented a view here today to your listeners. They're very, very welcome to reject all of it, some of it part of it, whatever they want. You know, this is a free market for ideas. But please come up with your own thesis. If you don't like mine, that's absolutely fine. But come up with an integrated, coherent thesis of how we got to the mess we're in now. And it wasn't just the virus, by the way. Uh, and where we're going to go next, that's internally consistent, that squares all the circles, both domestically and internationally. And I think you'll find it's very, very hard to do. And on that basis, while that doesn't mean you won't have some winners compared to some losers, I mean, I already alluded to the suggestion that countries that were big importers are going to do better than countries that were big exporters. That's a generic kind of label that I can slap up there. You know, the, the transition period is one that will challenge most people's balance sheets. And you have to make sure that you're correctly positioned to get through the kind of volatility that could throw at you. So start there, and then we'll talk, you know, 12 to 18 months from now. Based in Alberta, oil and gas-based economy, uh, I would get a lot of flack if I didn't ask you, how do you see oil prices moving from here, from the $40 mark uh, in the coming 12 months? Well, the Rabobank view at the moment, and of course it depends when people are listening to this, so we have to make sure that it's dated. Uh, the Rabobank view is that prices will drift higher. Uh, obviously, we can have shocks on any number of fronts, which can throw that all over the place, which is why oil forecasts are never accurate. But uh, the, the forecast we have from a, you know, uh, an excellent analyst who's got a great track record uh, is that prices will be drifting higher from here. And you know, in the next few years, we're more likely to see 60 than 40. Uh, but yes, as I've made very clear 
there's a lot of surprises that could shift that in different directions. What are the three major sources of information that you read and refer to in order to form your own worldview? Well, look, let me reiterate again, I've been doing this more than 20 years and I've got my own particular system and my own set ways. Like everybody, one goes to newspapers. I have to say there are very few newspapers that I think one can really rely on. Um, and very few journalists within those newspapers that one can really rely on. Because when you work in the markets, most of the time the news that you see, you saw unfolding the day before. So the headline, you know, depending on where you are and the time zone difference, you kind of saw that story breaking before the headline then happens the next day. That's, that's part of the reason why they're not as important anymore. But one thing that is important is if you're going to read newspapers, read all of them. So within your country, read the one that suits your political view and then read the one that really annoys you. Read the one that makes you grit your teeth uh, and want to click onto another screen. Um, so do that because it's only by doing that that you're going to get some, some way of bursting through the bubble that you'll be in otherwise, uh, politically, thought-wise, whatever. Uh, you know, it's a Hegelian technique to look for the truth or little slices of the truth in everyone's uh, mouths, and that's one way to do it. The same thing's true on social media. I get a lot of my, a lot of my uh, news from Twitter, um, from other sources. Um, and on that respect, you have to be very careful who you're listening to. I, I listen to a very, very wide range of voices, some of which annoy me intensely every time I read what they write. But if you, you know, if you do that, you will occasionally see real nuggets of gold and of wisdom in many different locations or emergent patterns that you won't pick up if you only read people that you agree with or people that you like. And of course, you know, that universe that you're listening to can shift around over time. So there may be certain things that are just so egregious that you can't, can't abide them. But, you know, if you're looking at the UK, for example, and you can hear from my accent, I'm a Brit. If you'd only read the London-based media, the business, pro-business media or the pro-Europe-based media, which is basically most of the media in the UK, uh, and if you'd read only your friends on social media, you'd have concluded Brexit could never happen. Well, how wrong were you? Uh, same thing with Donald Trump winning the US election, which, uh, which I expected to happen. Don't follow the same sources everybody else's. Um, now, you've asked for three. Uh, you know, I guess the other one is just uh, old war horses like myself who have been around the block, some of whom you talk to in person and some of whom you know, still have public profiles who uh, you know, semi-retired in some cases and have a better inside view of how the world really works than the younger generation who are so active on social media and in newspapers. Uh, and actually, you can get some fantastic wisdom from. Uh, so in other words, you know, maybe spend less time on TikTok, uh, more time talking to people whose biological clocks are going TikTok, 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 and uh, you might pick up a bit of wisdom. Last but not least, uh, Michael, what are the few books that you find yourself recommending to your friends? especially those that are not from your field of work? <laughs> well, first of all, read anything because no one really reads anymore. Um, so reading anything at all, whether it's <laughs> literature, history, biography, whatever, great, you know, even romantic fiction, whatever, just read because it, it does re rewire our brains. You know, I'm from a generation that grew up reading voraciously and I find it harder and harder to read a proper novel now because I'm so often on things that are 140 characters long or whatever. And, you know, you, you skim read, you don't read in the same way. So take the time to read a book cover to cover and get used to wiring your brain to think that way. Otherwise, you'll do everything on fast forward and you can't live your life on fast forward. You know, the generation that thinks you can just swipe and leap effortlessly between things 
and actually do big picture thinking in depth, in detail, with real granularity, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You're not far, you're not better. You're just faster and faster is not better than better. It's not the same thing at all. Um, but if you're looking for specific recommendations, you know what? I'm going to be very, very old school here. I mean, go for some of the classics. There's fantastic wisdom in the classics. There's a reason why they're called the classics. They've been around for thousands of years. There's, there's real truth about, you know, human nature and society in there, even if it's, uh, you know, not just pre-digital, but pre-industrial. Definitely, definitely worth considering. Uh, and have a look at anything to do with political economy. I don't mean politics. I don't mean economics. I mean political economy, which again is an original Greek concept. Have a look at that. The totality of how uh, economics sit within an envelope of politics. Politics sit within an envelope of what's possible domestically and power relations internationally. If you can manage to thread all those needles together, you've got a pretty good idea what's going on in the world as much as anybody has. If you're just going to try and specialize in one, well, you're chasing your own tail. doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money in the short run, but you don't really understand what's going on. Michael, my mind is blown. I have so many notes here. <laughs> I don't, I'll, I'll have to spend a couple of weeks thinking about uh, in, in, what, what, what would be the best place for my listeners to connect with you and interact with you um, uh, on, on different different topics? Well, I'm afraid that's a tricky topic because I don't have a social media profile. Uh, deliberately um and you may occasionally see some of my work on you know news websites or aggregator blogs you, you can look out for pieces that are picked up there which happens uh you know with, with a, a varying frequency uh but i'm afraid i can't reveal my email here because uh, my time is primarily for my clients uh and i don't mean to be elitist in saying that but that's that's what i that's what i'm paid for i'm afraid um, so if you'd like to become a client, then uh, we can have longer discussions. Uh, but if not, then uh, I'm very happy that anyone took the time to listen to this. Thank you very much. I hope some of it was of uh, some use or entertainment for you, even if you disagree and it's pushed you in a different direction, which you find useful. And yeah, maybe keep your eye out. You might see my name on something at some point, and I hope you enjoy that too. Thank you so much once again for all of the nuggets of wisdom that uh, you have shared with us. And I'm, I'm, absolutely sure that my uh, listeners would, would enjoy uh, this episode. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity and have a great day. Bye-bye.